That's my one opportunity to be wrong tonight. Maybe we can share. I think Chad's out too. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll share. It's a church. We'll share. Okay. <laughs> let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we stand in the light of your grace, in the light of your holiness, and especially in the warm light of your love. And we're thankful that you have blessed us by bringing us into your presence in such a way, Father, that we revel. Every day we revel in the fact that we are loved, we have significance. You have given us an identity, Father, that, that is not ours unless you give it to us, and that is to be conformed to the image of Jesus and to be called your children, your sons, your daughters. We're thankful for this church. We're thankful for the ways that, that, that this, this church shows the strength of your grace and the way that we minister to one another and, and forgive and, and love and, and are merciful and compassionate and generous with one another. We're thankful, Father, for the opportunity to, to stand in your presence with your word open and to press our minds into it in such a way that we are convicted by it and we are changed and we are inspired and confronted. But more than anything else, Father, we are changed into disciples who go out into this community representing you and your love and your kingdom and your grace and, and, and every inch of that message, Father, that has blessed our lives. We embody it every day. And we have come to this place not only to worship you, Father, but, but to, to encourage one another and, and to embrace each other as you have embraced us with all of our differences, with our points of maturity and immaturity, we have come together as a family. And we stand here before your word, Father, asking you to bless us with eyes that are able to see it and ears that are able to hear it. And so bless us in this way, Father. Bless us. And again, thank you for the opportunities and for, for the ways that you open doors before us in the coming days to bring glory to you. And we pray all of this in the name of our Savior, our, our Master, our Lord Jesus. Amen. I've never preached, at least to my knowledge, a, a sermon on the text tonight that, uh, that Bob read to us out of Matthew chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 17. But, you know, we've, uh, and I think most preachers have always alluded to this, especially in and around Easter uh, uh, each year. Uh, it's, it's really the material that makes up uh, what, is, what is known in the religious world as, as Palm Sunday. Uh, it's at that point in Jesus' ministry where he has just a few days left in his earthly ministry. And what is striking to me, every, every time I read the, these, these, these verses, is, is, is how deftly, how nimbly Jesus is able to orchestrate these events, events that are highly symbolic uh, acts and, and words and scriptures that are tremendously impactful and profound even at the end of his life, to help us to learn and to know what's happening to him. And, and to know how these truths affect us if we're really willing to kind of dig into it and, and do the hard work of study and thinking. And, uh, and what we have here is really uh, maybe three points. There's, there's a lot more than that, but with the time that we have, I want us to look at three, I think, pretty gigantic things as Jesus is heading into Jerusalem the first is that at, at this point, Jesus is beginning to ramp up the confrontation. One of the things that is, um, 
a, a question that you hear from, from new believers, new Christians all the time, and, and you even hear it from folks that, that, uh, that have been believers for a while. One of the things that takes people back from time to time when they sit down and they read the Gospels all the way through is the number of times that Jesus does something great. He heals somebody, gives sight. He gives, um, he, he gives health back to someone, does a great miracle, and then he tells that person not to say anything about it. He did not want, it seems, any kind of public proclamation of this deed or this act that he has done that would give some kind of a question to his identity. Now, we're not told why he forbade this specifically, but we have a couple of ideas. One has to do with all of the perceptions about the Messiah, uh, what he would be like, what he would do, how he would achieve it, and they were, in the end, really misperceptions. During this period of time, there were those that thought he would be a political messiah, others a spiritual messiah, and yet others a military messiah. And there were even groups who thought he was going to be some combination of this. And there were even, as, uh, like the Essenes, as, as the Essenes thought, there was maybe even multiple messiahs that would come and restore Israel to its greatness. Everyone had their own ideas, and a lot of it had to do with their own agendas. And even someone like John the Baptist, as we saw last week, had some questions of his own. The main one being, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? And so to keep these misperceptions at bay as much as possible, Jesus forbade the public proclamation of a lot of these miracles. And what this is known as is the Messianic secret. Another reason why uh, there was this Messianic secret or this this uh, this um, pushing back at any gigantic public proclamation of his identity or, I mean, he even told the demons not to, 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 to talk about it. Uh, it had to do with, with timing. The more that people made proclamations of the greatness about Jesus, the greater the claims of his miracles, the more pressure the Jewish leaders would, have, would, would face to stop him. They would have to stop him even if they had to kill him. And Jesus was not ready for this to happen. Now, that is not to say that Jesus did not do miracles in front of lots of people. There was the feeding of the 4,000 and then later on the 5,000. And that's also not to say that at times Jesus was not confrontational. Whenever they, he was accused of breaking the Sabbath, he gave a right teaching on what that was all about. And a lot of times that was perceived as a very dangerous, confrontational new teaching that made the religious leaders of his day hate him all the more. There's a Sermon on the Mount. I think probably one of the most confrontational sermons that was, that was ever preached. But the reason he did this is because his time had not yet come. And so we read of his ordering people not to speak about what he had done. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, all of that is changing. In chapter 20, Jesus is walking with the crowds to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. That's how everybody got there. They, they made these long pilgrimages, these walks from the north and, and from the, uh, the east and the west to Jerusalem. And in chapter 20, Jesus is a part of these, these crowds that are making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And on the way, at the end of chapter 20, he encounters these two blind men who shout out and call him what? Son of David which is a, a, an extremely loaded and highly messianic term. It was the term for the long-awaited Messiah, and everyone knew it. It was the term for the one that was going to restore order and power and the, and the kingdom of God for all of Israel. It was the son of David. 
the great king. And Jesus doesn't stop any of that. He doesn't deny any of it. He just brings sight to the blind men in front of the crowds going to Jerusalem for Passover. And then he rides into Jerusalem on, on this donkey, in this, this, this baby donkey, while everyone shouts, Hosanna. And by the way, Hosanna does not mean hallelujah or, or praise Him. It means save, save us. And he rides into the capital city, Jerusalem, as shouts of Hosanna are ringing out. And when he arrives at the temple, he gets really distressed that it has become full of money changers and they're disrupting the worshipful spirit and, and, and the focus on God because of the way that they're gouging people who have had to exchange maybe animals that had become blemished on the way or because of the exorbitant prices they were charging to get a sacrificial victim, an animal to make. People were feeling gouged. They were feeling upset at the exchange rates. And so they would go into the temple of God, not for prayer and the worship of God and the acknowledgement that God is the creator of all things. But their mind was elsewhere. It was on the fact that you know, they've been cheated by their countrymen. And so he begins to drive them out. And he overturns their tables. And he quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, and, and he says, you know, you have made my house my house a den of robbers jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 rather than a house of prayer for all of the nations isaiah 56 and verse 7 now you know as well as i do that the only person who has the right to change the furniture in the house is the owner and sometimes it's really only the wife of the owner that is able to change <laughs> you know the furniture and jesus here declares himself as such he's the owner it's my house he's the owner of the temple and so after this period of time where you have this messianic secret where jesus is saying don't tell don't tell don't tell go show yourself to 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 the priest but don't tell you have christ in jerusalem being very forthright about his identity and he is confronting the city, and he's confronting the leaders, and the message, and all of the things that he says, all of the things that he does is this. You have to crown me, or you have to kill me. This, this is the option, or these are the only options that he gives them. Now, now, here's the thing. You really can't read this without sort of sensing that, that Jesus is, is, is saying this to you and to me personally. Crown me or crucify me. Crown me or, or, or kill me. And, and, you know, one of the things that makes Jesus different from you and me is that, is that Jesus is the most humble person who ever lived, but at the same time, he's not modest. Think about that. Jesus, when he confronts us, is, is tender. In Matthew chapter 11, his yoke is easy, his burden is what? Light. He's gentle with women and the children and the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, and the Gentiles, the people from other nations. He is gentle with them. But at the same time, he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's a direct statement about his identity as God. He says, if you're going to follow him, then you have to let the dead bury the dead. Hey, you can't allow father or mother or children or wife or, or family stand in the way of following Him. He pushes the envelope a little, doesn't He? And this is where it gets a little personal. You know, you, you have to crown me or you have to flee from me. You have to kill me. You have to do away with me. 
what he is saying is that you, you can't just like me. You just can't find me curious. You just can't like some of the things that you find attractive in my teaching and sort of make it your personal philosophy. It doesn't work that way. You have to crown me and make me king or you have to do away with me. Now, we do this all the time in the modern world. I mean, think about it this way. Suppose I come to your door and knock on it, and I, I come to Jeff's house, and Jeff opens up the door and he says, Oh, I'm so glad to see you. Mark, you can come in, but Absher, you have to stay out. It's impossible. You can't separate the two at all. I'm, I'm either all Mark and all Absher, or I'm nothing at all. It's the same with Jesus you have to accept Him for who He is as Savior and Lord or not at all. Which leads to a second thing. And the only word that I could really think of to, to kind of describe this is that Jesus does some things here that are very counterintuitive. That means the things that we normally think would be fine and the way to proceed is the exact opposite of what Jesus does. At least in the way that conventional human wisdom works. Jesus comes in by riding on a on, on donkey, on the colt of a donkey. And in so doing, he's sort of giving us this, this satire on all of the triumphant entries in all of the world. I mean, just to make it you know, relevant to, to what was happening in Israel, 150 years earlier, during the, the Maccabean revolt, you know, Simon Maccabee and, and Judas, his son, Judas Maccabee, had led successfully this revolt that allowed Israel to stay independent and out from under the thumb of the Seleucids who were wanting to Hellenize uh, Israel like nobody had done before them and to make them sacrifice to gods that were just, you know, in, in, in terms of the way that Israel would look at it, not only was it vulgar, it was it distasteful and an impossibility. And when they were forced to do it in the village of Modain, those Maccabeans rose up and struck down those Seleucids and said, we are going to war because we will not compromise. And they won. And so here the Maccabees come riding into Jerusalem and people are shouting this kind of praise at them. Generals, emperors, kings, when they, when they would ride into a city, they would ride on fearsome horses magnificent animals and not on baby donkeys. But Christ deliberately chooses a donkey and a baby donkey. He is proclaimed king on these kinds of animals. Now why do this? I think it has something to do with Him telling us something about who He really is. He will be the answer to the Hosanna. Save us. He will be the answer to that, and He will rule, and He will save, but not by power and not by killing. He will do, do it by losing power and by being killed. He is the answer to the Hosanna while He is stretched out on the cross. According to Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. Now, if we think carefully enough about this, it begins to make sense because one of the things that we should at least intuit, even though we, we, we don't do it very well at times, one of the things that we should intuit, if we ever get thoughtful enough and quiet enough and honest enough, is that we know that we can never be saved by our own strength. We just can't. Our own strength is not the answer. And this salvation comes to us 
through the weakness of one who made himself so, even though he was God himself. And he'll die for anyone, and for us, and for anyone who's willing to come to him in faith. And all of this, this dying for the sins of the world and being the lamb that takes away the sins of the world is, is counterintuitive. We think, they think, so much of the time is that the thing that makes a leader is that he is, he is decisive and he is powerful and he is ruthless at times and he is willing at any cost to make things happen even if it means that he has to sacrifice those that are nearest and dearest to him. It's so easy a point to miss about us. A lot of times we go to God because we need something from Him. And we're going to make God that answer. We have a problem or we have a need and we expect Him to fix it, thinking all the while that this is the answer to what is wrong with me. There's a story I heard about this chaplain who got called in the middle of the night. There was a man at the hospital that was, that was panicked. Uh, he had some tests that were going to be revealed to him that, that evening by the doctor about whether or not he had cancer. He thought he had cancer. He was calling the chaplain, chaplain in a panic to have somebody there to talk to. And when he, the chaplain gets to the hospital, uh, the, the, he meets the fellow, and, and the guy's so apologetic. He says, I'm so sorry that I called you out. I did just get the results, and they were negative. I don't have cancer. I don't need you, chaplain. And the chaplain the whole time is thinking, he says, how wonderful it is to meet somebody who's never going to die. <laughs> but the point of the matter is that we all are going to die. And that's the biggest hint that there is something dramatically wrong with us. The problem is, is that we go to God and say, this or that is exactly what I need. And in Matthew chapter 21, we have people who, who want God to bring judgment down on Rome. They're thinking that if they could only get Rome's foot, their, their, their hobnailed sandal off of their throat, then everything's going to be okay. Rome is what's ruining the world. But what they needed was someone who would bear the judgment for them. And here's where it gets really practical again. You know, one of the first implications of this is that there, there has never been a better example of the problem of human celebrity than, than Palm Sunday. I mean, these crowds are, 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 are waving the palm branches and they're, they're shouting out the messianic titles and the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, save us. And then a couple of days later, and, and you know, Jerusalem is not that, that, that big. There are a lot of people there, but it's really not that big during this period of time. And, and I, I, I truly believe that there were a lot of those people that on, on this day that were saying, Hosanna and Son of David and blessed is He and all of these kinds of things that a couple of days later are the same ones that are shouting, crucify Him. And there's never, I think, at least... Uh, there's not a more vivid picture of the superficiality of corporate human fickleness. We want the regard of the world. And then on the, the, the next day, we're on, we're on the trash heap. I mean, how much more important is the regard of God? In John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Four chapters later in John chapter 10, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. 
Hebrews chapter uh, 13, verse 5, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Those that Christ loves, He loves to the end. And secondly, and, and this is probably the most practical, especially uh, for me who have a, you know, I have a lot, <laughs> you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but I still have these expectations for the kingdom. You know, this is a, a tremendous example of the lifelong mismatch between our expectations and what it is that God knows we need. In the short run, you know, so many times it seems disappointed, but in the long run, it's exactly what we needed. One of the things about Jesus is that He's always confounding human expectation, <laughs> but at the same time exceeding it. Somebody wrote, um, and, I, and I, I've, I've forgotten who it is, but somebody wrote that God gives you what you would have asked for if you knew what He knows. And when you know that, you know what happens? Your life gets a little bit more peaceful and a little more stress-free. And then Jesus is the coming king. When, when the people saw him coming in and, you, you know, there's, there, there was a lot of teaching by the rabbis during this period of time of how the, um, how the Messiah would come. There was, there was even teaching, you find it in, in the Talmud, that if the, 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 uh, the Messiah was coming to, to put things right, and uh, in, in coming in love, coming in forgiveness, he would come riding in through on you know on this on this donkey. But if he was coming in judgment, he would appear in the sky. There was the you know the idea of how he would come in through the 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 the, 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 uh, the golden gate. He would cross the Kidron Valley through the golden gate and go into the the temple area. All of these different things. And when they see Jesus coming on this colt, you know meeting you know prophecy and all of this. They thought that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to put everything right. That politically things were going to get straight again. That in terms of some of the intrigue about what was happening with the monarchy and, and uh, with, with those Herods and his family, they thought, well, maybe this is going to be established for, you know, you know, once and for all, who is the true leader and king and the, and the, and the, 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 the leader of, of the Jewish nation. He was going to come back and he was going to put everything back together again. But what he was doing was coming back to put us back together. He is the one who is going to bring that ultimate blessing, that shalom, that blessing. He's the one who brings the answer to the request of Hosanna, save us, even though it was not exactly the way they thought it was going to be. The palm leaves waving look forward to the time when the world is right once again. But there's, there's one other thing here that, that has, that, that's really intriguing to me as you think about it. Grew up uh, uh, in the early part of my life with, um, with uh, ranching and uh, got out of it uh, early enough to forget anything or everything that I ever knew about it. But one of the things that I do know, especially in, in, in seeing my dad and his partner and, you know, the horses and all that, is that you, you really can't do much with a horse that's not been broken. And so you, you have Jesus uh, coming in to, uh, to Jerusalem, not just on a donkey, which, it, which is not very fearsome, 
but the unbroken colt. You have, you have to have these animals broken before you can ride them, especially like this. And this baby donkey would have been scared to have someone on his back, especially with the crowds yelling the way that they were. But the calm that Jesus is able to bring to nature, you know, the, the, the storm that's brewing the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Greek language, it is the mega seismos, the great shaking. Matthew says literally that the waves are covering the boat. And Jesus says very simply, like you would say to a child, be quiet, stay quiet. And there's no residual waves, there's no residual wind, it becomes glass. It is a what was a mega seismos, a mega shaking, a great shaking, becomes the mega calm, the great calm. And when Jesus is on the back of, of this donkey and on, the, on this, this colt of a donkey, there's a calm that he brings to this animal. The more I, 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 I think about that scene, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things to think about, obviously, but I think about that one particular aspect of it. It, 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 it reminds me of how one day the world will recognize the Creator and the Ruler of all things. And in that day, there will be a submission and a peacefulness restored and lions will lay down with lambs and, and there will be a peace of, and, and, a, and a rightfulness and a wholesomeness and an integrity and, and a shalom, a health that is so pervasive throughout the world that there's not even a whiff, a, a, a scent of anything evil. Why? Because even the most evil thing, death itself, the complete, utter corruption of what God has made that we corrupted through our sin has been swallowed up in victory. We're just a couple of chapters away from being done with Matthew. But Jesus is at that point in His ministry now where He is point blank saying, I am the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah that you think. My concerns are for the concerns of God in all things spiritual and, and for the sins of the world to be forgiven in order for man and God to come back together in a way that they were at the very, very beginning. And that's only going to be done if I am crucified and die and three days later, having borne the sins of the world, all of the iniquity, all of the transgressions, all of the missing the, the target that human beings have, 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 have committed throughout the, the, the entire history of the world. Only then, only then, can any of this other stuff even have a chance. And that's, and that's what we offer tonight, is that second chance to come back to God because of what Jesus did as the Messiah, coming into Jerusalem to die and to bear the sins of the world and to be confronted not only with the fact that He is Savior, but that He is the King, He is the Lord. He is the owner of all things. And as Jeff leads us in this song, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here in the front. And what we ask is, if you would like to give yourself to this King, not just the Savior, but this Savior and King, this Lord, this, this Lamb of the world that uh, takes away the sins of the, this, this Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, then that can be done tonight. And, and, and 
God can begin to put your world back together by putting you back together from the inside out, your sins being forgiven, you being blessed with a, a significance and an identity in God, having that spirit inside of you, your, your, your whole life sanctified. If that describes you, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them tonight about, about having your sins washed away, about being restored to God, about, about finding your salvation, being added to the church in such a way that every blessing that that entails follows you all the days of your life. If that describes you tonight, come forward as we stand and sing together.